John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. Uh, can I say, uh, lovely to see so many of you here. Uh, some of you I haven't seen for a very long time, so uh, uh, good to see you again. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that we serve a risen Lord, uh, and we pray that you open our eyes that we might uh, see him uh, in this, uh, your scriptures, uh, and that your spirit who gave us this scripture uh, through, the, through the Apostle John uh, would work in our hearts, um, that we too uh, might see, we might believe, we might trust uh, and obey him. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, has Jesus ever appeared to you in person? Because, well, if he did, uh, then you'll know the resurrection is true, right? You'd, you'd, you'd believe in him. Do you need to see him in order to believe? Because, well, there are many things that we don't see. I mean, I've never seen a COVID-19 coronavirus, have you? We've all seen pictures of it. We've all seen the effect it has on people. We've all heard the testimony of experts who have examined the virus with scientific techniques. But even though we don't see the virus, we, we believe it is real. But is it the same with Jesus? Or do you need to see in order to believe? Well, to answer that question, we go back to the evening of Easter Sunday, uh, the very first Easter Sunday. Uh, John tells us in verse 19 of this passage, uh, for the second time, that it is the first day of the week. Right? In Genesis, creation began at the first day of the week. And as we saw last week, the resurrection of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, it's like we've got the, the new creation brought forward in time. Uh, the disciples, however, they are hiding in a locked room in case the Jewish leaders who has recently crucified their master should now come after them as well. That's interesting, isn't it? This is the day that, that God has overturned death itself. The day that all things are new. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus means actually the disciples don't need to be scared anymore. But they don't know lah. They are hiding away for the fear of the Jews. And no doubt, they've been talking about some of the strange events that happened that day about what Peter and John had seen at the tomb. The linen cloth which had been around Jesus' body and the napkin that has been on his head, just as if Jesus' body just passed through him. Uh, and then about the report from Mary Magdalene, who, who told him that, that she's seen the Lord, but has she really? There they are, hiding in fear. At the end of verse 19, Jesus comes. And he says to them, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, on the one hand, that's just a greeting. Lah. But from the lips of Jesus on this occasion, and actually this is gonna, he's going to say this three times in this one passage, it's got to be more than that. Jesus is the king who died on the cross and rose again to bring in this kingdom of peace. Those who belong to his kingdom have peace with God now and will eventually live in perfect peace, in unspoiled relationship with God, with each other, and with that new creation. And so in the midst of their fear, Jesus speaks his words of peace. And then he shows them how he won that peace. He shows them, verse 20, his hands and his side. Now, that's a little bit surprising, isn't it? Uh, you might have thought that in a resurrection body, 
right? The piercing in the hands and the sight will all be fixed. Right? Jesus doesn't come back with his back bleeding from the flogging or his brow scarred from the crown of thorns, but his wounds and his hands and his side where he is nailed, where he is pierced, still there. Well, they are no longer injuries, but trophies. They are an ever-present reminder to us and to all who would see him that this king was indeed pierced for our transgressions. They're an ever-present reminder that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. They're an ever-present reminder of the pain and suffering that he went through when he took our sins for us. An ever-present reminder of the price he paid to redeem his people and an ever-present reason for us to give him praise. And so one day, in the new creation, when we stand around the throne, we will sing our never-ending praises and it will be to the Lamb who was slain for us. And even here, in this world of suffering and pain, these wounds tell us that our King, this one true King, is not a king who is aloof from us. He's not out of touch with his people. He knows our pain. He knows what we go through. He is alive, but he hasn't forgotten the cross. He's a king who is recognized by his scars. But when the disciples see the Lord, they are glad. In fact, the word in verse 20 could be translated, they are Overjoyed, of course. Of course la. It's, good to, it's good to see people after being away from church for a year. How much more happy will they be? So happy to see their master who loved them, whom they followed closely for the last three years, they hoped in, they believed on, and they thought was dead. And now he's alive. And he's here. And then he says again to them, Peace be with you. His death had made that peace possible and his resurrection makes it a guaranteed certainty. And then he gives them a commission. Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. All through John's gospel, Jesus has been showing us, or John has been showing us, that Jesus is aware that he's sent by the Father. He's on a a rescue mission to save the world. Uh, John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He is sent by the Father. And now he sends his disciples. They will be his apostles, that is, his sent ones. He was sending them to continue that work of saving the world. And they will do so not by dying for sins and rising again like he did, They would do so by explaining and proclaiming the gospel through which sins could be forgiven. And just as the Father who sent him was always with him, Jesus also would be with his disciples by his Spirit. And he breathes on them. He says in verse 22, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, or they have been forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, what's going on here? Right, does this mean that apostles can go around randomly to people and say, oh, hey, hello, I like your face. Okay, I forgive your sins. Oh, no, don't like you. Okay, I'm going to withhold. Right, well, of course not. Lah. 
Right? Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Right? Not they will be forgiven, but they are forgiven. Or perhaps even better, they have been forgiven. So it's not that, it's not, we mustn't think of them as causing God to act to forgive their sins, but rather declaring to the world whose sins are forgiven and whose aren't. And Jesus promises that what they say will actually be correct. Because notice that these apostles, these are special people that Jesus has chosen, they were given the Spirit in a special way, weren't they? Right? Together with all God's people, they would receive the Spirit at Pentecost. Right? That, that, that's, a, that's a general thing. But what going, what's going on here is special. Uh, remember, before his death, Jesus had promised these disciples that the Spirit would lead them into all the truth. He wasn't talking to every Christian. He was talking to these apostles. And so the Spirit of truth would actually lead these apostles to a right understanding of whose sins it is who are forgiven. And they will be able to declare to the world who is forgiven and who is not. Now, who speaks for God today in saying whose sins are forgiven and who's not? Well, at one level, it's not you and it's not me. Right? It's not the Pope, it's not the Archbishop of Canterbury or anything. No, no, no. It's still the apostles that Jesus had appointed. Right? We, don't, we don't have them here in person. But we have their writings. The Spirit of truth who led them into all the truth, as Jesus said, led them to give us their teachings in the New Testament. Now, of course, the New Testament is not just the words of the apostles. It's more than that. It's part of the Bible. It's inspired word of God, breathed out by God himself. But it's also the word of the apostles. So on the one hand, you can say God speaks in his word. That's right. Or on the other hand, you could say the apostles speak for him in his word. And that's also right. The apostles are Jesus' appointed, authoritative messengers. And here we have Jesus guaranteeing by his Spirit that they will get it right when they proclaim who receives forgiveness. And friends, the witness of the apostles in the Scriptures is unanimous. Those who believe in Jesus, who trust in him as their Savior and Lord, they are forgiven. Here's what the apostle John himself wrote in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But there was one disciple, one of the twelve, who at first didn't actually believe himself. Thomas, called the twin, wasn't there when the, with the others when, when Jesus appeared, and he actually missed out on seeing the risen Jesus. And the other disciples told him in verse 25, we have seen the Lord. But his response was highly skeptical. He says to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, it's now eight days later, so it's the second day of the next week. Once again, in verse 26, the disciples are in the house. This time, Thomas is with them. Once again, the doors are locked. And then once again, Jesus comes and stands among them. And once again, he says to them, peace be with you. And then Jesus turns to Thomas. 
Even though Jesus hadn't been physically there when Thomas made his cynical little speech, Jesus knows exactly what he said. He tells him most gently, as he says to him in verse 27, He's, uh, sorry, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Actually, Thomas had no excuse, isn't it, for not believing. He had the Old Testament prophecies. He had the words of Jesus himself who predicted he would rise. He had the empty tomb. He had the eyewitness evidence of Mary and the other disciples who had, who had seen the risen Jesus alive and had talked with him and touched him. He has no excuse, actually, for his lack of faith. So Jesus says to him, Do not disbelieve, but believe. And friends, you and I have no excuse either. We have the Old Testament prophecies. We have the words of Jesus who himself predicted he would rise. We have no reason to doubt the historicity of the empty tomb. Even Jesus' enemies at this time acknowledged it. We have the recorded eyewitness of evidence of, of many who have seen the risen Jesus alive and touched with him and talked with him and eaten with him. Even more than Thomas, we know they're reliable witnesses because we know they sealed their testimony with their own blood. Jesus says to us, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas believed. And believing, he was transformed. In fact, this, this guy who was the most cynical, number one skeptic, on seeing the Lord became the first to recognize him for who he truly was. Others may believe that he was a prophet like Moses whom God promised, and that's right. Others may believe he was the king, the Messiah that God promised, and yes, that's right. But Thomas grasped at this point that he's actually even more than that. Others may realize he's a son of man who would rule the nations. That's right. But he's even more than that. And suddenly in Thomas's mind, all the pieces come into place. Everything Jesus says makes sense. And the penny drops, something goes click. At the beginning of John's gospel, John tells us that Jesus is God. And what we, the readers of John's Gospel, have known from that very first verse is finally recognized by someone other than Jesus here at the very end. This is the climax, if you like. The, the whole book is leading up to this point. In verse 28, Thomas answers him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Jesus is none other than the Lord God himself made flesh. He is the creator and ruler of all, the one to be worshipped and adored. You know, friends, according to Da Vinci Code, the Council of Nicaea under Constantine in 325 AD was responsible for making Jesus, who was until then recognized as simply a man, into God. But that's not what the evidence says. The New Testament writers tell us again and again, show us that Jesus is God. The early church worshipped Jesus as God. We have it from the church fathers. We even have it from hostile Roman writers. And right in this passage we see that Thomas comes to the very conclusion one week after the first Easter Sunday. Not 325 AD. 
But Thomas is not just confessing objective truths about the identity of Jesus. He's making them personal. For he's not just calling Jesus Lord and God, but my Lord and my God. He not only believes the facts, but from this point onwards, he will seek to obey Jesus as his Lord and worship him as his God. And how does Jesus respond to this acclamation? He doesn't go, well, you know, Thomas, you're going a little bit far, huh? There's only one true God. You should worship him. I'm just a, I'm just a messenger. Oh, no, 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 no. He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says to him in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas has come to the right conclusion. But like the other disciples, he believed because he saw Jesus. And yet millions and millions of more people down through the ages would, see, would, would believe without seeing Jesus physically. People like you and me, who rely on the witness of these disciples. Who read or hear of Jesus through the apostles that were sent by Jesus himself, through their writings inspired by the Holy Spirit. I would be moved to that same faith by the same Spirit working in our hearts so that we too will cry out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus declares that we are blessed, that we will experience the peace of the kingdom of God in the new creation for all eternity. Which brings us to our third point, the risen Jesus and us. We know that Jesus has not appeared to us personally like he did to Thomas. But we also know that he didn't need to. We've got John's gospel. We've got the rest of the Bible as well, but we've got this gospel. That is written for people like us who have not seen Jesus. It doesn't give us exhaustive knowledge of Jesus. We don't know everything there is to know about him. But we have sufficient knowledge of Jesus. We know enough of him to trust him. As we read John's gospel, we are able to, to recognize the signs and perceive who he is. He is God in the flesh. We are able to understand what he has done for us. He has died for our sins and risen again. We're able to put our trust in him as our Lord and our God. And by putting our trust in him, we can have eternal life. That's why John wrote this book. In fact, he tells us that very clearly. Verse 30 and 31. Look at it with me. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And friends, you and I have received what has been written. And now we must respond. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Come to Jesus, like Thomas, and bow before him in worship. 
Take him as your own master, the master of your life. Say to him with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Believe that you might have life in his name, for blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And if you do believe, then you are an heir to the disciples' mission. Remember, the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sent his apostles. The Father sent Jesus to save the world. His mission was to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again, to restore humankind to relationship with God. And then Jesus sent the apostles. Their mission was to proclaim the message of what he's done so that people might hear it and might have eternal life. Part of their work is done. Part of their work not yet finished. Right? We don't have the authority to define as God's spokespersons whose, whose sins are forgiven, whose are not. We, but we don't need to. It's already been made clear. What we need to do is proclaim it. And doing so, we bring the forgiveness of sins to those who believe. That's the part that's still not finished. Because there are many, many, many people all over the world who have yet to receive the gospel. There are many people who have not heard the apostolic message that through Jesus their sins can be forgiven. And Jesus commanded us to communicate that news of his death and resurrection to all the world, to make disciples of every nation. That is our mission as a church. We need to do that here in Malaysia. And we also need to play our part in bringing this message to the world, to people overseas who will also need to receive it. You know, one of the young ladies in our church who has recently completed two years of internship with us is preparing to become a Bible translator. Her desire is to, to translate the Bible into one of the many sign languages in the world that doesn't have it, so that deaf people can hear the Word of God in their heart language. And so we are praying about how can we, as a sending church, be, be supporting her as she does this. You know, for many years, we receive missionaries. Now it's our turn to send. Uh, but it's not just overseas missionaries. We're seeking to bring the gospel to the nations here in the Klang Valley. And so we support John and Yvonne Sivakoti. They reach out to people from Nepal. That's mission as well, isn't it? I'm so thankful to God to hear about a Nepali lady who just last week confessed Christ as her Lord and her God, as Thomas did all those years ago. And as the apostles declared, she is now a forgiven woman. And it's not just cross-cultural mission. We bring the message of Jesus to our local friends and family as well. Just three days ago, one of our leaders had the privilege of of leading a lady to Christ. This lady is gravely ill, but she now believes in Jesus as her Lord and her God. And she has eternal life, no matter what happens now. And this lady was introduced to Jesus through her daughter, who is in our congregation. And her daughter herself, herself only came to Christ last November. And she's been really growing in one of our liturgical services growth groups. And now she has the joy of, of seeing her mother believe as well. Father sent Jesus. Jesus sent the apostles. And now we continue their work in taking the message to others. That even though people don't see the risen Jesus, they might believe that he really is the Christ, the Son of God.
and that by believing, they may have life in his name. What a privilege it is for us to share in God's wonderful work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for raising your son from the dead. We thank you that in him and, and through his death in our place, we have eternal life. We thank you for giving us John's gospel and indeed all of your written word that we might read about Jesus. Please give us hearts and minds that always trust in him as our Lord and our God, even though we haven't seen him. And please give us the wills and the strength to carry out the mission to which he has called us, to do so with gratitude and joy. We pray these things in his name. Amen.